Good evening to you all and welcome to our first talk of the autumn series. Uh, I have to say it's great to see so many of you here this evening and if you are guests of ours you're very welcome and I hope we'll see a lot more of you in the future. Now this week I think we've all been reminded of the 75th anniversary of the height of the Battle of Britain and I know some of you were lucky enough to get tickets to go down to Goodwood and watch what must be an absolutely spectacular display, the likes of which I don't think we'll see again. And for those of you who watched the Channel 4 programme on Tuesday evening, there was a remarkable woman there by the name of uh, uh, Mary Ellis, who, unassuming, she belonged to the ATA and flew uh, Spitfires and Hurricanes to various RAF bases. And during her interview, she'd said she'd been up this week in a uh, twin-seater machine, and it brought back memories flooding to her all those years ago. And she said, I nearly got used to flying again. And the guy said, well, how many do you deliver? And she said, oh, only 400. <laughs> Which leads me on to someone here who's very special to the museum and a very good friend of mine. Um, we have Helen Mills here this evening. Helen, you're very welcome. Um, Helen was a plotter in fighter command in Uxbridge during the war and I'm sure she's stories to tell and maybe we'll get a couple of quotes out of her at the end. <laughs> Helen, you're very welcome. I'm sure you've seen Downing and Churchill looking down on you on several occasions. going to be, you know, spotlighted this evening, but um, it, it's lovely to see you all. And, you know, women in wartime, we had Kate Aldy, didn't we, talking about women, how they, they actually came to and did so many things that find it easy. But you men, you know, we can do it too. But anyway. Don't we know it? <laughs> I was four years plotting. I was not at the Battle of Britain, but I was down the hole, down the bunker at Uxbridge in, uh, in uh, the 40s, and uh, it was a fascinating place to, to work. And I have given, I've given a couple of talks here. First of all, I did one, and people said, oh, we, we never saw it, we never saw it, come do it again. I said, well, not up to me, but up to the organisers. And uh, I did actually the Christmas lunch a couple of years ago, and some of you may have heard me, how plotting works in the ops room, because people know it works, but how exactly? But if you want to hear it again, I'm afraid you've got to... Um, <coughs> <laughs> okay, but it's lovely to we'll see you We'll invite you back, Helen, but it's lovely to see you, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Helen. Thank you very much. Now, I'm sure you all enjoyed those cartoons at the beginning, uh, the Brocklebank cartoons, and I've been asked to say that uh, they were supplied by Chris Ellis, so thank you Chris for supplying them. Now I promise I'll be quiet for a minute, um, so on to our guest speaker this evening. Uh, we started to talk about this evening about a year ago, goodness knows where time flies. Um, now I know that Sarah is going to talk about her background and her work with the National Motor Museum and with her family who are deeply rooted in the transport and car uh, environment in Hastings. So, Without further ado, would you please give a very warm welcome to Sarah Cross. Thank you. 
Steve said, I come from a motoring background, and I'd like to just touch on that before I start. My father, Michael Frank Hickman, was born in 1915, and he was the former managing director of Hastings, of the Skinner's Motor Dealers in Hastings, East Sussex. This was a family firm which was in, originally inherited by his father, Frank Hickman. So in fact, it has been in the family business since 1912. My father actually joined the business on leaving school. Here you have a wonderful old photograph of one of the original Skinner's motor buses. Moving on, this is a picture of my father on the left with the rather wide trousers and the stopwatch. My mother, my mother is at the start line, very keen to keep going, rather start going, in her Morgan. My father was a very keen supporter of the Bodium Hill Climb. Don't get to do that often, do I? Which I believe was started in 1957. This was to celebrate the harvest of the hop picking, which would take place every October. My father also helped provide marshals for the RAC rally when it came to Hastings, and I believe on several occasions he did actually meet Pat Moss. So a few famous people do actually come to Hastings. It's not a great place to be living now. I'm very glad to be living in Lymington. This, in fact, you'll see my mother, she wanted me to point this out, she was actually placed first in the Skinner's entry for the 1955 Concourse Delegons. Skinner's, in fact, would do this on a regular basis. My mother was first, she said the lady with the rather scary hat and the equally large Rolls Royce Definitely expected to be first, but my mother kept it to the best. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, what was the role that women played in the very beginning, the 1900s? I've researched this a lot, and I've come to the conclusion that, as is often the case now, women were often used to help promote the sale of cars without actually driving them. As these photographs show, women would actually be seated at the wheel of cars without driving them. They would often be dressed up in all their finery with nowhere actually to go. So like today, women obviously play a major part in helping to promote the sale of motor cars. Here are two rather fine young ladies. You'll notice that obviously they look extremely confident behind the wheel, but whether they're going anywhere remains to be seen. There were, would you believe it or not, speeding nannies. Speeding nannies, if you'd like to call them that, they would often use their motorized perambulators, which were manufactured in Birmingham in the 1920s by an old-fashioned firm called Dunkley's. Now, because British law did not allow these perambulators to actually proceed along the pavement, they have actually taken their life into their hands, be on the road. 
So as you can imagine, obviously, this cartoon depicts, they were probably having a lot of fun. And here we have an example of an old advert of exactly what these motorized perambulators would have looked like. But you have to remember that this was just the start. Many women were to go a lot further, which I hope to divulge to you. Okay, so what was the first step to freedom for many women in the 1880s? The first step to freedom, of course, was the bicycle. When you consider it was the tricycle, really, when that appeared on the market, was really the only acceptable mode of transport, but it had to be for respectable women. When the two-wheeled bicycle came on the market, that was considered far too improper and dangerous for women to even attempt to cycle. And of course, the men were very against this. They had the added problem of their long skirts getting caught up in the machinery. You will notice that obviously fashion played a very important part. Women had to look correct, whether they were behind the wheel by just having their photographs taken, or as this shows, they're even wearing these smart little straw boaters. They're all looking relatively happy, I must admit. Okay, so obviously, long skirts would get caught in the machinery. And of course, they were not keen to give up their cycling because it gave these smart Edwardian ladies a very agreeable feeling of independence. They did not want to give up cycling from village to village, paying respectable calls. And this is why a lot of the women who were wives of local vicars and doctors persevered and it was very much the start of the suffragette movement. See, even the little girl dressed up just like mum. Here is an advert of obviously the Shaw's Water dress fabrics of what the smart modern day lady was wearing. She would be the one who would be out fishing, playing golf and on her, on her bicycle. The particular jacket that they're wearing is known as the Norfolk jacket, which will be nipped in at the waist, again with a smart straw boater. The problem was they're still wearing their long skirts. We come to the tandem. Now, as you will notice, the women are actually adopting the bloomers. This was an idea by a lady, a very smart American, called Amelia Bloomer, who wrote in a magazine as far back as the 1850s about the sort of clothes that women should adopt. The cue obviously is in the name and a lot of women, when the idea came to this country in the late 1880s, were obviously very keen to try them out. Sometimes these knickerbockers, to obviously prevent them from riding up, they would be fastened with a buckle or pieces of elastic. So you can see this is the start, the start of a modern woman. Between 1900 and 1912, motoring costume developed rapidly. The motor coat was considered very chic because of its association with the motor car, money, speed, modernism. What you sometimes people don't even realize when I talk about this at Beauty is that to dress up appropriately, Full motoring 
you would sometimes have to pay at least £300. That would often sometimes be more than the actual car. If you consider a Dion in 1903, probably costing, costing around £200, to get yourself completely kitted out by your smart outfitters, Gamages, Harrods and Burberries, that would easily cost £300. Consider that to a meagre wage to a maid, that would be 60. 60 pounds. Sorry, is that me? Okay, so as you can see, because women were very concerned about the ravages of the weather and what sitting at the wheel of a motor car or even a passenger would do, they had to really protect themselves against the ravages of the wind. They also wanted to protect that all-important hairstyle. This would be considered a very smart motor coat. They tended to be waterproof, sometimes they were silk or fleece lined, and they would cover the whole body as you can see. The head covering would obviously just enough room for you to see out. But the problem was, the women didn't like wearing goggles. They considered them far too ugly, so they left that to the men. So, of course, they had to really protect themselves as much as possible. Again, an example of charming motor millinery. If the, if the ladies with their rather large Gordian hats had any idea of how to actually fix them into place, they would wear the motoring rails. Even the dog didn't escape. This is the French poodle, um, looking slightly bemused by the whole affair. And I notice he has got the goggles. Okay, slightly more serious now. This is a charming portrait of Bertha Benz. You probably recognise her, I hope you do. Because when I talk about Bertha Benz at Bewley, everyone says, yes, I've heard all about Carl Benz. Don't know much about his wife. Bertha Benz was courageous, intrepid, and absolutely determined to prove that a great future awaited the automobile. She married Carl Benz in 1872, having fully invested heavily in the company. He had no vision for the future. He was so fearful of ridicule when he was building his early Benz motor bargains that he always stuck to the same test route around the streets of Mannheim. And I believe the first time he took one of the Benz patent motor bargains out, he smashed straight into a stone wall. Bertha Benz was determined to prove him wrong. She proved to her husband and the many skeptics that a great future awaited the automobile by embarking on her epic journey on the 5th of August, 1888. Every year in Germany, they still reenact this journey. It forms part of the heritage of, of Germany. It is talked about all the time, and this is why I always try and spread the word. She tackled the problems with typical feminine ingenuity when the car broke down. And what I should tell you is that Carl Benz was going out of his mind with panic attacks because she left a note on the table saying, sorry darling, I borrowed the car, um, don't wait up, I'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> what she did, she took the two eldest boys, Richard and Eugen, 
who were perfectly, perfectly okay with the mechanics of the bends, and every passerby was called upon to help. Now, when she set off on the bends, she had to fill up with Le Groin when the car broke down. Le Groin was a type of motor, motor sort of nasty cleaning fluid, which is also used for cleaning and getting rid of nits in your hair. <coughs> she unlocked a fuel line with one of her hat pins, and she also insulated a wire with one of her garters. The great thing about this journey is that a woman did it. She travelled from Mannheim to Forzheim. It took her all day, basically. It was not a race, but it, she wanted to get there before nightfall. And of course, when she got to her mother, which was the whole idea of the journey, she actually telegrammed Carl to say, we're all safe, it has been a complete success, but I do suggest that you fit a second gear to make it easier for the bends to climb up the hills. There's a picture of her, obviously, uh, later on in life. Um, I don't know who the gentleman is with her because apparently this apparently was put in just as I arrived here tonight, so I do apologise. This is a rather charming photograph of Camille de Gast. Camille de Gast was born in 1868. She was a French socialite who was considered probably the most beautiful woman in Paris. She scorned convention throughout her life. She threw herself into extreme sports of any kind. The more extreme, the better. She was the first woman to also contest an international road race, the Paris to Berlin race in 1901. Now this was a very brave thing for a woman to do. It was absolutely scandalous for a woman to even consider entering these big road races. She was completely furious after this because she was driving a Panard Lavassa, which she considered not quite quick enough. The French authorities decided to start her at the back out of 122 cars. So she again said, I'm having none of this, I'm going to contest it. Two years later, she decided to enter the Paris to Madrid road race, the famous race to death. She went off and she bought herself a very fast De Dietrich, one of the fastest cars of its day. She had a lot of money. She could do these things like, like that. And she also had the support of her husband, who was a gentleman named, named Jules Crespin, who had a string of department stores in Paris. Here she is at the start of the race with a kiss on the hand by um, Count de Dion. In fact, the race was aborted at Bordeaux because of the number of fatalities, when in fact she was running sick. There she is at the start of the race with Count de Dion. But what she did, she familiarized her car, she bedecked it out with garlands of flowers, and she got a strong following. She had a very strong following from the French, from the, from the French ladies. Okay, this is a wonderful photograph of Dorothy Levitt. Dorothy Levitt was born in 1882. I'm sure you are all aware of her name. She is best remembered for her close association with Selwyn Edge. Selwyn Edge, 
who was the famous racing driver and director of the Napier Racing Car Company. The most amazing thing about Dorothy Leonard, and she achieved a hell of a lot in her lifetime, was that when she went to work for Napier as a secretary, she couldn't even drive. Now, Selwyn Edge had been considering very seriously that a woman should help promote his cars. He had been very impressed by the antics of Camille de Gast on the continent, and he decided that this long-legged be long beauty with eyes like pools should help promote his cars. He arranged for one of his mechanics, a chap called Leslie Cunningham, to teach her, but he was not at all happy about this. First of all, it was on his day off, and he said, Dorothy Levitt, she wears unwieldy hats, which she probably is here, as you can see, innumerable petticoats, smells of scent, scent, and I doubt she doesn't even understand the mechanics of a car. But she proved that she had natural driving ability, and in 1903, she surpassed herself by winning her class in a 12-horsepower works gladiator at the Southport Speed Trials. Now, this was full in the papers because she was, first of all, a working secretary, and it was absolutely scandalous for a woman to be at the wheel. There she is, another charming one. This, I believe, was one of her favorite photographs because amongst her many achievements, she was always writing to encourage other women to take up driving. She bought out a very handy book called The Woman and the Car, The Woman and the Motor Car, which was full of very handy hints about all the things that a woman should know before she sets out on the road, even down to the correct driving position, and also making sure that you can even carry out roadside repairs, of which Dorothy could do both. She was a, a wonderful inspiration to other women. Here she is, I believe this was taken at Brooklands in the Napier. This, I believe, is probably one of her favorite photographs as well. She was the first British woman to actually receive international recognition. Here she is. Now, this is very interesting. The 1905 um, speed trial at Brighton, where she was in an 80 horsepower Napier. And this courageous young lady reached speeds of almost 80 miles an hour. The following year, sorry, I should go back. The following year, she broke her own record at Blackpool by reaching speeds of almost 90 miles an hour in a 90 horsepower Napier. In the book, there's a wonderful section about always and never, and the motor driving maxis primarily intended for lady drivers. The book was published in 1909, and it was republished in 1970. And when you think about it, everything that she wrote about here still holds good today. Okay, so now, sorry, this isn't a very clear photograph, but this is a photograph of Les Lyonnaises. So we're back to France. Les Lyonnaises were a team of women who were employed by the Eunuch factory just outside Paris. They were used because the men were considered 
far too unreliable to actually test drive these vehicles. <laughs> they used to turn up for work on time, whereas the men often would be late, and they probably had drunk far too much beer the night before. And this team of women would actually take the cars from the factories to the testing sites, and they were known as Leonesses. Okay, so this is a rather attractive photograph of the famous Bugatti Queen. The Bugatti Queen, 1920s racing legend. She achieved a great deal in her life. She was actually born in 1900, and she was christened Helen de Langle. Very, very impoverished start to life. Her father was a postman in a little village about 47 miles southwest of Paris. But what Helen, Helen de Langle, and I will call her Helenese because that is what she's best known by, what she craved most in the world was adventure. So what did she do? She ran away to Paris during the First World War and she trained as a dancer with the Casino de Paris. She built herself a solid reputation and she had a reasonable income, enough to buy herself a decent flat and a yacht. So she was beginning to move in the right circles, but I believe she did a little bit of modeling and there were one or two rather dodgy encounters, not maternal encounters. <laughs> so as you can imagine, Paris was very much the center for motorsport in the 1920s. Hélène craved excitement. So what did she do? She entered the third all-women Grand Prix at Montelleri on the 2nd of June, 1929. There was fierce competition. Here she is in her Omega-6. As you can see, she's a rather glamorous individual. she is in, in sorry to place the gentleman I will go back actually the Omega 6 now what she did she actually crossed the finishing line 62 miles later having averaged a speed of 60 miles an hour which was quite something here is the lineup of the other women who are actually racing against her You'll just see here, there was a rather uh, scowling Violette Morris, who was known as the um, hyena of the Gestapo. <laughs> Lucy Shell, Dominique Ferrand, and Helenis actually won. And when she was given the opportunity, oh, there we are, there's Violette Morris. Um, I believe, many years later, she was actually ambushed by the French resistance and shot. Not a very nice character, there she is again. Not pleasant. And I think if looks could kill, she, she would definitely um, have, have been killed. Uh, before I come on to this one, I would just like to say that in December 1929, Helenice was given the opportunity to drive in a, to beat the, the lady's landscape record. And what she was doing was that she was actually being watched very closely by Ettore Bugatti. Now, Ettore Bugatti had been very impressed by her at the All Women Grand Prix earlier in June, and he decided that she was just the girl to help promote his cars, and apart from that, drive them. 
and she was actually entrusted with a Type 35C, and she beat the women's land speed record for reaching speeds of over 120 miles an hour. Okay, so now we come to the, the 1930s, rallies and championships. Things were beginning to start to get serious. The paris Dover rally was a particular favorite. It attracted a lot of famous people, the aristocracy, rich and famous, music hall musicians, but it was also there for people to, to prove that they could actually drive these cars and attempt real records in real cars. And the women had a very, very strong following. Names such as Kay Petrie and Helen East were there to prove it. As you can see, it was a very glamorous occasion, but it did obviously have the seriousness as well. So now I'm going to jump forward. I'm not going to mention the war because as you are all aware, the women who were actually used during the war years, they were used obviously very, very effectively and they had their, had their major roles, but it was seen to be for the duration only. So now you come to the 1950s, austerity. They were the baby boom years. You probably all remember these rows of neat looking cherubs lines and lines of them. Um, it was the formation of the NHS. So, a little bit different these days. So we come to the 1950s, and the last lady that I'm going to talk about to you tonight is Maria Theresa de Philippis. Maria Theresa was the first woman to make a Grand Prix grid in the 1950s. She was Italian, she was born on the 5th of May, 1926. And she was born into a very affluent family in Naples. She had three older brothers who were always goading her and teasing her because she used to talk a lot about cars. She was a bit of a tomboy. They always bet that she would never get anywhere and she should stick to riding horses. But she, fought, she bought her first car at the tender age of 22 and she entered a race, a 10K race, between Salerno and Carpa di Trevi, which she won in her little Fiat 500. Of course, if you were rich, you tended to race your own cars. This, in fact, is a picture of her, probably at the start of the Monaco Grand Prix in 1958. Okay, just before the Monaco Grand Prix in 1958, this is a picture of her Urania BMW, which she actually raced in the Italian Sports Car Championship in 1954. She was second. Of course, then it all seemed to happen. Maserati, seeing her potential, decided to pull her in as a works driver. Now, that was a huge moment for Maria Theresa. That was by far her biggest challenge. Her reasons for moving to Maserati were obviously she accepted it, but she had actually turned down Enzo Ferrari because she felt that he commanded people too much and she wanted to go to Maserati because she felt that it was far more of a family concern and she was certainly treated extremely well there. She was highly respected. She is still alive today. She, I believe, is 89 in November. But the great thing about this woman was 
that when she entered the 1958 Monaco Grand Prix, although she failed to qualify, I believe she was 44 seconds off Tony Brooks's pole position, she, that was a tremendous moment for Maria Theresa because women in the 50s were only popular in the pits. They were not expected to be behind the wheel of the car. So here she is, just in the practice lap before the, before the 1958 Grand Prix at Monaco. So today, she leads a slightly quieter life. She is a grandmother, and the reasons is that she, because she turned her back on the sport, in 1959, she felt there had been too many deaths. She'd lost too many close friends. And in fact, when she returned in 1979, she became a member of the International Club of Former F1 Grand Prix Drivers. And as Tony Brooks and Sir Sterling Moss said, there was a lot of male chivalry around, chauvinistic um, attitude but she was highly respected. And even when Sir Sterling Moss used to lap her in various Grand Prix, she would pull over as if conceding and he would blow her a kiss because he said she had impeccable manners. And she basically is, I think, one of the grand dames of motor racing. Um, she doesn't think much of uh, Formula One. I was reading a, a blog the other day about her where she said, these days, motorsport, it's all about the electronics of the car and how fast the mechanics are. When she was with Maserati, the drivers would all travel together, they would stay in the same hotels. Today, she said all the drivers, they basically just get on their private planes and jet off into the sunset. And I think she really loved the family atmosphere at Maserati. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'll now hand over to my colleague, Barry.
as with most young ladies at that time, her interest was in ponies. And uh, she quickly sort of rose to the ranks of uh, equestrian activities in this country. And she, in a very short space of time, she was up to Olympic level. Uh, even so, uh, in the early 1950s, uh, she did start rallying, uh, notably with Ken Gregory, who was Sterling's agent. And the first event she entered actually was in a Morris Minor in a treasure hunt. And she had, by that when that happened, the bug had bitten, and that's all she needed to get it going in her rallying career. By 1955, she was running a Triumph TR2, and it's a very interesting story that I always tell at the National Motor Museum about a particular event. Uh, she approached Ken Richardson of Standard Triumph, who was the competitions manager there, uh, and she said, well, can you help me out with the 1955 RAC? He said, well, we can give you a car, and typical of Pat, she said, well, I've got the car, it's the money I need. <laughs> and uh, his, for some reason or another, he turned her down. And she rather, sort of, that's rather, rather rude of him. And being a rather feisty lady, as you can imagine, she went off to Marcus Chambers, who at that time was the competition manager of MG. Well, of course, he's, he's, one of his major roles was to beat Triumph any value he could, and he was only too pleased to take Pat on, gave her an MGTF 1500, which she entered the 1955 RAC rally. The rest is history. I started off her career with BMC, went through various cars such as the MGA, Morris Minor, the A40 we see there, and up to the good old Healy. Now, I will say something about this one photograph, actually. This comes from our archives at Bewley. We don't know when and where it was taken. So the little bit of audience participation here, anybody would care to share some light on where that picture was taken, we would very much like to know. All we know is if you blow up the number on the bonnet, you do actually read British Rally or International Rally. We're not really sure where it is. So if anybody knows that, we would very much like to know. Anyway. Going back to 1958, the remarkable year for her in that she not only finished fourth in the um, RAC rally, driving the most minor of all things, she actually came fourth in the Liège Rome Liège, driving an Austin Healy 106. Now, I can't think of two cars that are very much different in character between the Morris Minor and Austin Healy 3 litre. Uh, well, there we are, a very versatile lady. And that uh, fourth place in the Liège Rome Liège was enough to give her enough points to award uh, her the first of her five European Ladies uh, Rally Championships. In 1960, she moved on. Uh, with Anne Wisdom, she came first overall in the Liège Rome Liège Rally, another remarkable achievement for her. And in 1962, she was still rallying with uh, BMC. And she had two notable wins that year in the Tulip Rally and in the Deutschland Rally. Later on, uh, she also became champion in 1964 and 65 to complete her five European Ladies Rally Championships. Now, she did continue uh, up to late 1960s, still rallying the Healy, but I'm sure you realise that by the end of the 60s, the Healy was starting to lose some of its effect and was gradually being phased out by BMC. And in time, following the birth of her daughter Susan in 
Uh, she went into semi-retirement. Uh, she did rally for Lancia, Lancia Fulvia, and also a Toyota. But in 1974, she, she retired from the scene altogether. Another lady who had a big effect on racing in those years was Betty Hill. We know that's great Graham Hill, of course. And here you can see her fulfilling her roles as, as a wiser girlfriend in those days, keeping the lap times for them in the pits. And you can see on the right there is Graham Hill as well with a young Damon. And a lovely picture of the family there with Damon, Samantha, Betty and Bridget at their home in Hertfordshire. A real family affair, as you can see. And she also went on to form the Doghouse Club, which was set up in 1962. Uh, still going strong. Remember, it finished off its 50th anniversary just uh, in, 19, in 2012. We had a big celebration at the Ivy in London. It was founded not just by Betty Hill, but by Colin Chapman's wife, Les Lester's wife, and John Cooper's wife. They all took a part, and one of the leading lights in that was also Sheila Van Dam, one of the rally drivers, and the club is still going strong today. With that, I'd like to hand you back to Sarah. Thank you. Somehow 
scientists, would you give a very warm and heartfelt thank you to Barry and Sarah for a First, would you have any questions you'd like to, to ask, either Barry or Sarah? I'm sure there are some. Yes, sir. I'm aware of Susie Wolfe, obviously, with Williams. I believe she's waiting in the wings, taken on as a development driver in um, 2012. Uh, I hope she makes it. She should do. Another hand, so at the back, yes, sir. Uh, Camille de Gast was. In fact, yes, I, I didn't mention that, which I fully intended to. When she was um, not permitted to enter competition races after 1904, the ACF decided that, um, first of all, they didn't like women doing this, um, and they wanted to ban them completely. She said, right, I'm not one to give up, and I'm going to turn to racing motorboats. She also survived an assassination attempt by her daughter, who wanted to get her hands on her mother's inheritance. Um, but I think the problem was that really broke her spirit, and she then decided that enough was enough, and she spent the rest of her life um, focusing on disadvantaged children and well, orphans in France, and doing a lot of work for the French government in Morocco. Uh, another question, I saw a hand towards the back. No more? Oh yes, this, yes sir. Very, very well done, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. Um, I paid it to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I did. No, you did. No. Um, uh, just of interest, is it largely based on the material you have at uh, Bewley? Uh, or because there's a sort of big gap about all the ladies who raced at Brooklands and all that aspect. Well, maybe that was deliberately omitted because you were adding other materials. Yes, yeah. it was. When, when I spoke to Steve about this, yeah, um, okay. I, I decided um, that I wasn't going to touch on the women at Brooklands because I felt there were so much other things to talk about and obviously everyone here tonight is aware of their achievements. Um, I, I, have, um, I saw a gap in the market at work um, and I basically um, thought of this myself and I've just, I'm continually researching and a bit of a petrol head, basically. <laughs> <laughs> any, any more questions? Well, yes, sir. Oh, madam, sorry. Pillars in the way. What was the dog house? Sorry? Dog house. Dog house. Oh, the dog house was a, was, a, was a club. They were, they were left in the dog house at home. That's really why. Uh, the dog so house. Only women could join. Only women could join the wives and girlfriends of the uh, racing drivers, yeah, because they left, left the home in the dog house, yeah. What was WMRC? That, I don't know, because that slide was actually put up for me this evening. I don't know what that means. I had a different slide which wasn't quite up to quality, and so that slide was put in for me. I'm not too sure that's that, what I'm afraid so. Maybe another. Gareth, yes. Yeah, um, talking about women, you mostly talk about women in motorsport, but today the boss of General Motors is a lady, and the boss of Citroen is a lady. Uh, I 
Maybe from the audience. Yes, sir. successful fast lady, everything from Pikes Peak Hill Climb to winning a rallies and the fiendish Audi Quattro S1 and 2. Uh, it seems strange that ladies seem to excel better perhaps in rallying than they do in uh, Formula 1 and other things. Is there just some, can you pinpoint any special feature <coughs> that ladies can cope with endurance rallying perhaps better than sort of sprint events? They're better drivers. They take directions. I'm moving out of the way. Co-drivers, they'd rather take the instructions from another lady, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> you have seen Michelle Mouton driving out of Quattro's practice. Yes. yes. I see you. Ten points. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, round of applause for Barry Young. And Sarah. 